Chapters 58 and 59, the final chapters of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 58 The night was strangely solemn and still. In the small hours she whispered to him the whole story of how he had walked in his sleep with her, in his arms, across the Froom stream, at the imminent risk of both their lives, and laid her down in the stone coffin at the ruined abbey. He had never known of that till now. "'Why didn't you tell me the next day?' he said. "'It might have prevented much misunderstanding and woe.' "'Don't think of what's past.' said she. I'm not going to think outside of now. Why should we? Who knows what to-morrow has in store?" But it apparently had no sorrow. The morning was wet and foggy, and Clare, rightly informed that the caretaker only opened the windows on fine days, ventured to creep out of their chamber and explore the house, leaving Tess asleep. There was no food on the premises, but there was water, and he took advantage of the fog to emerge from the mansion and fetch tea, bread and butter from a shop in a little place two miles beyond, and also a small tin kettle and spirit-lamp that they might get fire without smoke. His re-entry woke her, and they breakfasted on what he had brought. They were indisposed to stir abroad, and the day passed, and the night following and the next, and next, till, almost without their being aware, five days had slipped by in absolute seclusion, not a sight or sound of a human being disturbing their peacefulness, such as it was. The changes of the weather were their only events, the birds of the new forest their only company. By tacit consent they hardly once spoke of any incident of the past subsequent to their wedding-day. The gloomy intervening time seemed to sink into chaos over which the present and prior times closed as if it had never been. Whenever he suggested they should leave their shelter and go forwards towards Southampton or London, she showed a strange unwillingness to move. "'Why should we put an end to all that's sweet and lovely?' she deprecated. "'What must come will come.' and looking through the shutter clink, all is trouble outside there, inside here content. He peeped outside also. It was quite true. Within was affection, union, error forgiven. Outside was the inexorable. "'And, and,' she said, pressing her cheek against his, "'I fear that what you think of me now may not last.' I do not wish to outlive your present feeling for me. I would rather not. I would rather be dead and buried when the time comes for you to despise me, so that it may never be known to me that you despised me. I cannot ever despise you. I also hope that, but considering what my life has been, I cannot see why any man should sooner or later be able to help despising me. How wickedly mad I was! 
Yet formerly I never could bear to hurt a fly or a worm, and the sight of a bird in a cage used often to make me cry. They remained yet another day. In the night the dull sky cleared, and the result was that the old caretaker at the cottage awoke early. The brilliant sunrise made her unusually brisk. She decided to open the contiguous mansion immediately, and to air it thoroughly on such a day. Thus it occurred that, having arrived and opened the lower rooms before six o'clock, she ascended to the bedchambers, and was about to turn the handle of the one wherein they lay. At that moment she fancied she could hear the breathing of persons within. Her slippers and her antiquity had rendered her progress a noiseless one so far, and she made for instant retreat. Then, deeming that her hearing might have deceived her, she turned anew to the door, and softly tried the handle. The lock was out of order, but a piece of furniture had been moved forward on the inside, which prevented her opening the door more than an inch or two. A stream of morning light through the shutter-chink fell upon the faces of the pair, wrapped in profound slumber, Tess's lips being parted like a half-opened flower near his cheek. The caretaker was so struck with their innocent appearance, and with the elegance of Tess's gown hanging across a chair, her silk stockings beside it, the pretty parasol, and the other habits in which she had arrived because she had none else, that her first indignation at the effrontery of tramps and vagabonds gave way to a momentary sentimentality over this genteel elopement, as it seemed. She closed the door, and withdrew as softly as she had come, to go and consult with her neighbours on the odd discovery. Not more than a minute had elapsed after her withdrawal when Tess awoke, and then Clare. Both had a sense that something had disturbed them, though they could not say what, and the uneasy feeling which it engendered grew stronger. As soon as he was dressed he narrowly scanned the lawn through the two or three inches of shutter-chink. "'I think we will leave at once,' said he. "'It is a fine day, and I cannot help fancying somebody is about the house. At any rate the woman will be sure to come to-day.' She passively assented, and, putting the room in order, they took up the few articles that belonged to them, and departed noiselessly. When they had got into the forest she turned to take a last look at the house. "'Oh, happy house, good-bye,' she said. "'My life can only be a question of a few weeks. Why should we not have stayed there?' "'Don't say it, Tess. We shall soon get out of this district altogether. We'll continue our course as we've begun it, and keep straight north. Nobody will think of looking for us there. We shall be looked for at the Wessex ports, if we are sought at all. When we are in the north we will get to a port, and away." Thus having persuaded her, the plan was pursued, and they kept a bee-line northward. Their long repose at the manor-house lent them walking power now, and towards midday they found that they were approaching the steepled city of Melchester, which lay directly in their way. He decided to rest her in a clump of trees during the afternoon, and push onward under the cover of darkness. 
At dusk Clare purchased food as usual, and their night-march began, the boundary between Upper and Mid-Wessex being crossed at about eight o'clock. To walk across country without much regards to roads was not new to Tess, and she showed her old agility in the performance. The intercepting city, ancient Melchester, they were obliged to pass through in order to take advantage of the town bridge for crossing a large river that obstructed them. It was about midnight when they went along the deserted streets, lighted fitfully by the few lamps, keeping off the pavement that it might not echo their footsteps. The graceful pile of cathedral architecture rose dimly on their left hand, but it was lost upon them now. Once out of the town they followed the turnpike road, which after a few miles plunged across an open plain. Though the sky was dense with cloud, a diffused light from some fragment of a moon had hitherto helped them a little. But the moon had now sunk. The cloud seemed to settle almost on their heads, and the night grew as dark as a cave. However, they found their way along, keeping as much on the turf as possible that their tread might not resound, which was easy to do, there being no hedge or fence of any kind. All around was open loneliness and black solitude, over which a stiff breeze blew. They had proceeded thus gropingly two or three miles further, when, on a sudden, Clare became conscious of some vast erection close in his front, rising sheer from the grass. They had almost struck themselves against it. "'What monstrous place is this?' said Angel. "'It hums,' said she. "'Hearken!' He listened. The wind, playing upon the edifice, produced a booming tune, like the note of some gigantic one-stringed harp. No other sound came from it, and lifting his hand and advancing a step or two, Clare felt the vertical surface of the structure. It seemed to be of solid stone, without joint or moulding. Carrying his fingers onward, he found that what he had come into contact with was a colossal rectangular pillar. By stretching out his left hand he could feel a similar one adjoining it. At an infinite height overhead something made the black sky blacker, which had the semblance of a vast architrave uniting the pillars horizontally. They carefully entered beneath and between. The surfaces echoed their soft rustle but they seemed to be still out of doors. The place was roofless. Tess drew her breath fearfully, and Angel, perplexed, said, "'What can it be?' Feeling sideways they encountered another tower-like pillar, square and uncompromising as the first. Beyond it another and another. The place was all doors and pillars, some connected above by continuous architraves. A very temple of the winds," he said. The next pillar was isolated. Others composed a trilithon. Others were prostrate, their flanks forming a causeway wide enough for a carriage, and it was soon obvious that they made up a forest of monoliths grouped upon the grassy expanse of the plain. The couple advanced further into this pavilion of the night till they stood in its midst. 
"'It is Stonehenge,' said Clare. "'The heathen temple, you mean?' "'Yes. Older than the centuries, older than the d'Urbervilles. Well, what shall we do, darling? We may find shelter further on.' But Tess, really tired by this time, flung herself upon an oblong slab that lay close at hand, and was sheltered from the wind by a pillar. Owing to the action of the sun during the preceding day, the stone was warm and dry, in comforting contrast to the rough and chill grass around, which had dampened her skirts and shoes. "'I don't want to go any further, Angel,' she said, stretching out her hand for his. "'Can't we bide here?' "'I fear not. This spot is visible for miles by day, though it does not seem so now.' One of my mother's people was a shepherd's ear about, now I think of it, and you used to say at Talbothays that I was a heathen. So now I am at home." He knelt down beside her outstretched form, and put his lips upon hers. "'Sleepy, are you, dear? I think you are lying on an altar.' "'I like very much to be here,' she murmured. "'It is so solemn and lonely after my great happiness, with nothing but the sky above my face. It seems as if there were no folk in the world but we two. And I wish there were not, except Lizer Lou." Clare thought she might as well rest here till it should get a little lighter, and he flung his overcoat upon her, and sat down by her side. "'Angel, if anything happens to me, "'Will you watch over Liza Lou for my sake?' she asked, when they had listened a long time to the wind among the pillars. "'I will. She is so good and simple and pure. Oh, Angel, I wish you would marry her if you lose me, as you will do shortly. Oh, if you would!' "'If I lose you, I lose all, and she is my sister-in-law.' "'That's nothing, dearest. People marry sister-laws continually about Marlott, and Liza Lou is so gentle and sweet, and she is growing so beautiful. Oh, I could share you with her willingly, when we are spirits. If you would train her and teach her, Angel, and bring her up for your own self. She had all the best of me, without the bad of me. And if she were to become yours—' It would almost seem as if death had not divided us. Well, I have said it. I won't mention it again." She ceased, and he fell into thought. In the far northeast sky he could see between the pillars a level streak of light. The uniform concavity of black cloud was lifting bodily like the lid of a pot, letting in at the earth's edge the coming day against which the towering monoliths and trilithons began to be blackly defined. "'Did they sacrifice to God here?' asked she. "'No,' said he. "'Who to?' "'I believe to the sun. That lofty stone, set away by itself, is in the direction of the sun, which will presently rise behind it.' "'This reminds me, dear,' she said. You remember you never would interfere with any belief of mine before we were married, and I knew your mind all the same, and thought as you thought, not from any reasons of my own, 
but because you thought so. Tell me now, Angel, do you think we shall meet again after we are dead? I want to know." He kissed her to avoid a reply at such a time. "'Oh, Angel, I fear that means no,' said she, with a surprised sob. "'And I wanted so to see you again, so much, so much!' "'What, not even you and I, Angel, who love each other so well?' Like a greater than himself, to the critical question at the critical time he did not answer, and they were again silent. In a minute or two her breathing became more regular, her clasp of his hand relaxed, and she fell asleep. The band of silver paleness along the east horizon made even the distant parts of the great plain appear dark and near, and the whole enormous landscape bore that impress of reserve, taciturnity, and hesitation which is usual just before day. The eastward pillars and their architraves stood up blackly against the light, and the great flame-shaped sunstone beyond them, and the stone of sacrifice midway. Presently the night wind died out, and the quivering little pools in the cup-like hollows of the stones lay still. At the same time something seemed to move on the verge of the dip eastward a mere dot. It was the head of a man approaching them from the hollow beyond the sunstone. Clare wished they had gone onwards, but in the circumstances decided to remain quiet. The figure came straight towards the circle of pillars in which they were. He heard something behind him, the brush of feet. Turning, he saw over the prostrate columns another figure. Then, before he was aware, Another was at hand on the right, under a trilithon, and another on the left. The dawn shone full on the front of the man westward, and Clare could discern from this that he was tall, and walked as if trained. They all closed in with evident purpose. Her story, then, was true. Springing to his feet, he looked around for a weapon loose stone, means of escape, anything, but this time the nearest man was upon him. "'It is no use, sir,' he said. "'There are sixteen of us on the plain, and the whole country is reared.' "'Let her finish her sleep,' he implored in a whisper of the men, as they gathered round. When they saw where she lay, which they had not done till then, they showed no objection, and stood watching her as still as the pillars around. He went to the stone and bent over her, holding one poor little hand. Her breathing now was quick and small, like that of a lesser creature than a woman. All waited in the growing light, their hands and faces as if they were silvered, the remainder of their figures dark, the stones glistened green-gray, the plain still a mass of shade. Soon the light was strong, and a ray shone upon her unconscious form, peering under her eyelids and waking her. "'What is it, Angel?' she said, starting up. "'Have they come for me?' "'Yes, dearest,' he said. "'They have come.' "'It is as it should be,' she murmured. "'Angel, I am almost glad 
Yes, glad. This happiness could not have lasted. It was too much. I have had enough. And now I shall not live for you to despise me." She stood up, shook herself, and went forward, neither of the men having moved. "'I am ready,' she said, quietly. End of chapter 58 Chapter 59 The city of Wintoncester, that fine old city, aforetime capital of Wessex, lay amidst its convex and concave downlands in all the brightness and warmth of a July morning. The gabled brick, tile, and freestone houses had almost dried off for the season their integument of lichen. The streams in the meadows were low, and in the sloping high street, from the west gate to the medieval cross, from the medieval cross to the bridge, that leisurely dusting and sweeping was in progress which usually ushers in an old-fashioned market-day. From the western gate aforesaid, the highway, as every Wintoncestrian knows, ascends a long and regular incline of the exact length of a measured mile, leaving the houses gradually behind. Up this road, from the precincts of the city, two persons were walking rapidly, as if unconscious of the trying ascent unconscious through preoccupation, though not through buoyancy. They had emerged upon this road through a narrow barred wicket in a high wall a little lower down. They seemed anxious to get out of sight of the houses and of their kind, and this road appeared to offer the quickest means of doing so. Though they were young, they walked with bowed heads, which gait of grief the sun's rays smiled on pitilessly. One of the pair was Angel Clare, the other a tall, budding creature, half-girl, half-woman, a spiritualized image of Tess, slighter than she, but with the same beautiful eyes, Clare's sister-in-law, Liza Lou. Their pale faces seemed to have shrunk to half their natural size. They moved on hand in hand, and never spoke a word, the drooping of their heads being that of Giotto's two apostles. When they had nearly reached the top of the great west hill, the clocks in the town struck eight. Each gave a start at the notes, and, walking onward yet a few steps, they reached the first milestone, standing whitely on the green margin of the grass, backed by the down, which here was open to the road. They entered upon the turf, and, impelled by a force that seemed to overrule their will, suddenly stood still, turned, and waited in paralysed suspense beside the stone. The prospect from this summit was almost unlimited. In the valley beneath lay the city they had just left, its more prominent building showing as in an isometric drawing, among them the broad cathedral tower, with its Norman windows and immense length of aisle and nave, the spires of St. Thomas's, the pinnacled tower of the college, and, more to the right, the tower and gables of the ancient hospice, where to this day the pilgrim may receive his dole of bread and ale. Behind the city swept the rotund upland of St. Catherine's Hill. Further off, landscape beyond landscape, 
till the horizon was lost in the radiance of the sun hanging above it. Against these far stretches of country rose, in front of the other city edifices, a large red-brick building with level grey roofs and rows of short barred windows bespeaking captivity, the whole contrasting greatly in its formalism with the quaint irregularities of the Gothic erections. It was somewhat disguised from the road in passing it by yews and evergreen oaks, but it was visible enough up here. The wicket from which the pair had lately emerged was in the wall of this structure. From the middle of the building an ugly, flat-topped, octagonal tower ascended against the east horizon, and viewed from this spot, on its shady side and against the light, it seemed to be the one blot on the city's beauty. Yet it was with this blot, and not with the beauty, that the two gazers were concerned. Upon the cornice of the tower a tall staff was fixed. Their eyes were riveted on it. A few minutes after the hour had struck something moved slowly up the staff, and extended itself upon the breeze. It was a black flag. Justice was done, and the President of the Immortals, in Escalian phrase, had ended his sport with Tess, and the d'Urberville knights and dames slept on in their tombs, unknowing. The two speechless gazers bent themselves down to the earth as if in prayer, and remained thus a long time, absolutely motionless. The flag continued to wave silently. As soon as they had strength they arose, joined hands again, and went on. End of chapter 59 and end of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, A Pure Woman, by Thomas Hardy, read by Adrian Pretzelis in Santa Rosa, California, October 2008.